Hi, this is Scott Porch, and you are listening to the Porchland Podcast. Today's show is part two of my two-part interview with Linda Opes, the producer behind romantic comedies Sleepless in Seattle and How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. She is working on several new projects and has a book out called Sleepless in Hollywood. In part one of the interview, we talked about the collapse of the DVD business and the increasing influence of the international box office on how decisions are made in Hollywood. Today, we talk about why some movies have gotten so much more expensive and some so much less. We also talk about the just-announced film Interstellar, a sci-fi epic that Obst will co-produce with Christopher Nolan and Jonah Nolan, the team behind the Dark Knight trilogy. But first, we pick back up with our discussion of Ope's 2003 film, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You said in the, the book that that movie had a production budget of about $40 million, and that, that's just that's what it cost to just make the movie, to pay everybody and edit it and the music, and that, that's what it cost to, to, to make it, right? Yeah, above and below. And I didn't find a lot of specific um, data about costs in the movie, but it looks like Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey made roughly a, a quarter of that production budget and, and what they were paid. Does that sound about right? Yeah, seven and five or something like that. Yeah. Is that is that possible today? I mean, can some yeah. can I mean can someone like those actors make movies like that movie and get paid that much 10 years later? Well, actors at the level they were then. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But people aren't doing it. That's the movie that's disappeared. They can be made for less. Well, that's what I was getting. I looked at a couple of comedies that I've liked in the last couple of years for production budgets and found um, Jennifer Westfeldt's Dinner with Friends, an article in the New York Times said was made for less than $10 million. Mark Webb's. She, she did a lot of favors. Oh, sure, yeah. You don't get you don't get John Hamm in your movie for nothing unless you're you know unless you're 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 with, been with John Hamm for ten years. Um, and Mark Webb made Five Hundred Days of Summer, which you know had a musical number and you know some it had pretty good production values for about seven and a half million dollars. What has changed in ten years that makes that kind of movie so much cheaper to make? Well, those are indies, and mine was a studio movie. So if you made uh, 500 Days of Summer as a studio movie, it would have cost you $30 million because a studio has internal costs. There's two different animals. He gets different union deals than I do. He gets different Teamster deals than I do. I have to take a certain amount of trucks as a studio movie. They're just apples and oranges. So romantic comedies haven't gone away. They've just gone off the lot. They've gone, they've gone to indie producers. Sometimes, yes. I'm doing How to Get Over a Guy as an indie movie for the same scale as his movie. But I don't think they have to do that necessarily. When they made a successful version of uh, the last Mila uh, Kunis, Ashton Kutchner movie was made at a studio, probably for in the 20s. Um, the same is true for the Winona Ryder, Justin Timberlake movie. I think actually it's the other way around. But those two movies were made at, uh, at studios for between seven and a half and 40, but they were made, um, I think probably the Paramount one was made for between 20 and 30, and the other one was made at Screen Gems for slightly less. Their model is less. But when you do a studio movie, 
you have uh, union requirements that you don't have on a micro movie, on an indie movie. Literally, the unions have two different tiers, and that's a huge part of your below-the-line cost. Everything gets smaller when you have fewer trucks, you're carrying fewer, less crew, and you're carrying them at a different rate. You, once you establish that our actors are working for less, then all the actors work for less, and you can't make those deals on a studio movie. Um, I, you know, I don't work in the industry and did not really know before I read the book, you know, how how movies were funded. I, I guess I just assumed that the studios paid for them, and I, I thought this um, section, when you're talking about how to lose a guy in 10 days, you write in the book, much to my surprise, it turned out that Paramount wasn't even paying for the movie. My real financier was a lovely guy named Winnie who ran a German tax shelter. I found this out on the set when Winnie introduced himself to me and told me that Paramount had sold off their domestic and international box office rights to him to fund the relatively low cost of the movie, $40 million. Paramount kept only the DVD rights, but that, I understood, was how they often put together their movies selling off the ancillary rights to keep their production costs down. This is called risk aversion. It either meant they thought the movie had no upside other than its DVD value or that it was the only way Sherry Lansing could get the movie made at the time. How is that possible? I mean, the studios are the bank, right? Every studio has a different business model. Fox would have funded the whole movie because Fox has a verticalized studio where they own, they have Sky TV, they own their own uh, uh, pay networks, and so they would have funded the whole movie because they own all their own ancillaries. During that particular administration, John Dolgen's priorities was to keep his costs really low so that he could make his financial projections to the board. So Sherry's job was just to get the movies made, and she was happy to make them get them made any way she could. They didn't see the DVD collapse coming, obviously, <laughs> and um, they were living off the side of the DVD. And, and that's a, that selling off the rights sounds like a safe model, like you're trying not to lose money on anything. That's not, how they operated. And did that did that when DVD collapsed? Did, did they they got stuck in that? I mean, I read the section of the book where you talked about how the studio heads kept changing, but, I mean, were those, uh, to look sort of behind what was driving those changes, was it because the studio just wasn't making the money that other studios were making in terms of their margin on each movie? No, really, it was because they were making, at that point, they were not making hits. If they kept making hits, I don't think the board would have cared. Um, at that point, uh, the board didn't see that they were out of tune with the market, uh, in terms of not picking the big technological extravaganzas that the audience was craving. Um, they just saw that they weren't making hits. Um, they saw that they were okay in profitability because they were not losing a lot of money, but there was a series of flops. And when there's a series of flops, someone has to take the heat. When you wrote about... Um how to lose a guy in 10 days in, in terms of, of your career after that, that you were having difficulty getting movies like that 
greenlit, what was happening? I mean, you were getting a, a script and, and a star together, and you'd go to the studio, and they would just say, we're, we don't have any money for that, or we're not making that kind of movie, or what? Well, two things were happening. Uh, on the Paramount level, I just kept having to pitch the same movies to different bosses over and over and over again because they were in radical transition of going from the old abnormal to the new abnormal. So uh, that's and really explain that relationship. You work uh, on you don't you were not a Paramount employee. You had like a shingle, like a production company that was sort of production company for eight years at Paramount. Yes. And how does that work? You, they you, they make it if they want to, but you can't take it somewhere else if they don't. Um, essentially, you can take it someplace else, but they're paying you a lot of guaranteed money. So you want to try to make it work there if you can. So you make money whether they buy your movie or not. You just make more if they buy your movie. Well, it's it's paid against your fees. So what happens is by the time your movie gets made, you both, they've already paid out your fee. So it's kind of a... Like an advance. Yeah. So, so that was difficult on a paramount level. But then on a systemic level, movies that they were had been very excited about in the beginning, really good movies, a movie I was trying to make, for example, about an intelligent design case that was going on in Pennsylvania that reminded me of the Scopes trial. I wanted to sort of do and inherit the wind. It was during the Obama uh, uh, McCain campaign, and I thought it was just really culturally interesting. It could raise a great debate. I had a great script from Ron Nicewander, who wrote the Philadelphia story. I had movie stars interested. And suddenly I was getting blank stares when I asked to go to directors. And I'd had a comp, so I, during a Thursday night dinner with my son and his wife and my grandkids, we all always sit around and talk about everything. But I was expressing my radical frustration that night about not being able to get this movie made because it was so good. And my son, who is a manager and incredibly smart, said to me, Mom, trying to get a movie made because it's good is so 2003. And I just went into shock because I realized I was undergoing a paradigm shift. And so it wasn't just Paramount. It was that the studios were frozen. It was that exact moment, 2008, right before there was a total video DVD collapse, but during the DVD collapse that Peter was talking about that the studios were unable to do a P&L. So not only was Paramount undergoing this big change, the whole business was undergoing a big change. And that's when I started trying to figure out what was going on and went into my Alice in Wonderland mode trying to meet uh, Nancy Drew, meet Reporter, old reporter mode. Well, and and you would do that now as a as an independent, right? I mean, you would. And, and I, I looked a little bit on. There's not a lot of information that that I could find before I talked to you about how to get over a guy in ten days. But look, the two producers listed, one is your company, and the other is Derby Street Films, which looks to me like a company that just invests in movies. Is that pretty much? That's right. So. You'll set that up, figure out financing between yourself and Derby Street and whoever else comes aboard, and you'll make the movie, and, and then you'll do what? You'll take it to festivals or shop it to studios or? No, we'll take it to, we have a distributor. Okay, so you will eventually have, because I've wondered, you know, I mean, you, you, you see a lot of movies that come through 
you know, various festivals or, you know, movies that get made. Festival type movie. This is too commercial. Okay, so you'll you'll attach a uh, uh, you'll you'll hook up with a distributor either during production or before you actually go into production. Exactly. So this will be a studio film. Yeah. And it'll have a studio budget, and you'll make it in Hollywood. No, no, no. It'll be smaller than that. It's going to be definitely an in, on an indie budget through a distributor. So is, is this sort of a new model for the studios? I mean, this because what, what you had said before about the, the sort of the built-in cost of that's normal. It's what we call a pickup, and it'll get a theatrical release and everything. Theatrical release, exactly. Jonah Nolan, uh, you talked to him for the book. He is Christopher Nolan's brother. He's a screenwriter. He's a co-producer on most of, of Christopher Nolan's movies. How did you know him to to, to go to talk to him for the book? He's also a wonderful television writer. He's writing. He is the creator of Person of Interest. Right. It was the television section that you talked to him for the book. Right. Well, what I was interested about is why one of the biggest blockbuster writers and hottest screenwriters in Hollywood would choose to go to television during the diaspora, as I call it, when so many drama writers were going to television because they were unfulfilled in features because they didn't want to be part of the blockbuster machine, he could write anything in features why he chose to join the diaspora and go to television. That was most interesting to me. Um, and uh, and I think he gives a completely brilliant answer uh, throughout the chapter. I call it the Jonah Rick chapter. <laughs> You're going to be working on a film with him coming up, and I, I know you can't say much about that because not much has been announced, but you're going to be a producer on Christopher Nolan's next film, Interstellar, right? Yep. With Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Matthew McConaughey, and you're going to work with them on that movie. Was that already happening when you talked to him for the book? I don't think I want to talk about Interstellar. <laughs> We're all in a really... We're all in a very happy cone of silence about interesting. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll move along. Steven Spielberg said I something. Knew, I, knew, uh, I knew Jonah before the book, obviously. Okay. Steven Spielberg said something a couple of days ago that, that did not make any sense to me, and I wanted to ask you what you think he meant. He predicted at a panel discussion that he thinks as many as a half dozen big-budget films will fail at the box office and said, quote, that's the big danger, and there's eventually going to be an implosion or a big meltdown. There's going to be an implosion where three or four or maybe even a half dozen mega-budget movies are going to go crashing into the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm. What do you think he means? Well, first of all, I want to say that Stephen is one of the smartest people I know in the business, okay? And he has a much higher perch than mine. So I take what he says very seriously. Here's what I think. I think in 2011, uh, 2012, when I was finishing this book, they, 2011, they made some very bad tentpoles. Okay? And that they, was, you mean the studios? The studios. And that was very dangerous. And then in 2012, uh, they made Avengers, right? and Hunger Games, and those were the big summer movies, and they were pretty terrific, right? So did they learn? Was that luck? 
right? Um, this year, uh, I think we see some really good ones, and there may be some flops coming down the line, right? That's going to be interesting to watch. The big danger with a effort to launch, with trying to launch a $250 million battle, the thermonuclear device, that then costs $250 million to market. That's a $550 million thermonuclear launch. If it fails, if two or three of them do fail simultaneously, that's not good. If that should happen, and I think this is what Stephen meant, not that it will happen, but in one summer in the past two happened, should four happen, I think that's the thing that could change the model. And when he says change the paradigm, you think he means that studios might not make those movies anymore? No, no, no. They will make those movies, but they'll make them much more carefully. Okay? With a lot, with a lot more co-financing and a lot more sort of risk assessment right. built into Discretion. Okay? No mashups. No, no fake graphic novels. No second-tier characters. Careful on the reboots. Which reboots? Right? So we're going to get fewer new properties. We're just going to see more Superman sequels. Successful sequels. Right? And, like, which of the original franchises, like, what, will there be another Fast and Furious, right? That was so good from the top it was worth launching. Will there be another Pacific Rim? Do you see what I'm saying? A movie that's so expensive that's an original property. What will it require to be an original franchise? The, Every property with pre-awareness, like Lone Ranger, a or John Carter from Mars, right? Is every property with some pre-awareness a potential franchise? Which ones are? It must get more discerning. What I'd like out of all of this is just for the marginal franchises to take all that money that are middling potential franchises and not make those and instead make four good $40 million movies, $30 million movies. Well, do you think the issue with John Carter from served. Do you think the issue with John Carter from Mars from a marketing standpoint is just that it, it wasn't the didn't have the pre awareness, it, it just didn't have the brand identity that they, they hoped it would? I think the problem was that it wasn't an IP worthy of being made. I don't think science geeks were interested in it and I don't think fantasy geeks were interested in it. Because the books were just too old and they weren't popular anymore. I'm a science geek. I didn't want to go. The last area I wanted to ask you about is television, and another thing that Steven Spielberg said at that same um, um, uh, conference that he spoke at was that Lincoln almost wound up at HBO, and I immediately thought, so what? I mean, that would have been a great place for Lincoln. Why, why does that even matter? Why, why wouldn't Lincoln have been just as good a place for it to go as a theatrical release? No. I mean, um, HBO, rather, have been just as good a place for it to go as theatrical release? No. I mean, most, people, most people are going to see it on TV anyway, aren't they? A lot of people don't have HBO. And that was a wonderful movie that the whole country should see, not just the people that can afford HBO. 
and and the battle scenes would have been smaller. And it told us so much about our country. Why should we reserve it for the elite? And Steven Spielberg has earned the right to make the movies he wants to make, not just ones that sell on the international audience, which is why he couldn't almost couldn't get it made because they don't care about Lincoln in China. Right. There's no. There's no. There's not the international market for something like that. And I guess where I was headed with that question is not that I don't love television. I love television, but I don't think that we should have stratified universe where we can only make movies for that are dumped down enough so that the whole world can watch it, and anything that's really intelligent has to go on HBO or Showtime. And, yeah, where I was headed with that is, is there still a distinction between what you make for film and what you make for television? Yes. Serialized drama with complicated characters that wants to be told over time is better on television because movies have to end in three acts. Um, after I Had to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, you basically flipped to, to, to working in television. Did, did you back into that, or did you, did you make a strategic decision to do that, or was it that the projects pulled you in that, in that direction? No, I made a strategic decision to do that. I jumped in it with two feet because I like to make up ideas. And the kinds of ideas I like to make up were took too long to get made in movies, and I didn't want to start making only indies after making big movies. I wanted to keep making big movies, and I did keep making big movies. I'm still making movies now, but, you know, they take a long time to make. So I like the speed of television. I like that there are seasons. I like that you have to make up new ideas every year and that you sell to cable all year long and to networks during the summer. So the speed of it was thrilling to me, and uh, I needed the alacrity. I needed the feedback. I needed the immediate answers, waiting for answers and getting blank stares while you turn in scripts was getting uh, head-banging, you know? Was was Hot in Cleveland the first project that you worked on? Yeah, it was the first idea I made up. So you got you got kind of you got kind of lucky on the first one. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, what is and you're listed on Hot in Cleveland as an executive producer versus a producer, and what does that mean in television? In television, you want to be the executive producer. Which means you do what? It means I made it up. Uh, the showrunner is Suzanne Martin. Okay, so you don't you don't show up for work every day on Hot and Cold One. I don't. Um, but you and you wrote in the book that it was sort of sort of pitched as a remake of the Golden Girls, which I had never really thought of it that way. But it's sort of what it is. Yeah. But the way I thought of it was like why I go to Texas because it makes me feel so good for guys to you know not look at me the like that I'm not a 14 year old mother. And you're from Texas, right? I've lived in Texas for 20 years. I'm from New York. And you also have done some work on a show called Helix for Sci-Fi. Has that is that still in pilot or picked up or? It's picked up for 13. We're in prep. So that means you'll start shooting that pretty soon, and then episodes will start first. Episodes will start coming out fall, winter. I think in January. What is that show about? Uh, 
that is a scary, uh, I don't think I can give you the log line, but it's a science fiction show. Okay. And you, it was, how did the idea come up? Uh, I got a spec script and worked on it, and then we sold it to Sci-Fi through Sony with Ron Moore and Steve Maeda. Um, you're about to go, I guess you're in pre-production on how to get over a guy, and we'll start working soon. We're casting now. And so you're moving forward on some television projects and some film projects at the same time. Is that is that how how's that how's that going to be? It'll be fine. Well, I mean, how do you how do you do that when you're dealing with multiple projects at multiple levels? I mean, do you eventually get to a point where I mean, you see showrunners that that happens all the time. Like Greg Garcia gets a new show produced, he moves from show A to show B, and suddenly he's not as involved in show A anymore. Is that what sort of happens? Showrunner. So it's easier. Showrunners have the hardest jobs in the world. And what does a showrunner do that's different than what you do in television? Well, a showrunner is a writer, and they run the writer's room, and they do everything. And direct some of the episodes, typically? No, they hire directors, and I help them hire directors. So I hire a showrunner, but a showrunner is in the writer's room. The showrunner is making sure the scripts get out, and... The showrunner has the heart of that. Showrunner, Jonah's the showrunner. That was part two of my interview with Hollywood producer Linda Obst, author of the new book Sleepless in Hollywood. In the coming weeks, I'll feature more interviews with authors and journalists. Please subscribe to the Porchland podcast on iTunes or Downcast. Thanks for listening.